0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/slash Institute. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm a modest guy and I'm feeling even more modest now. Um, at such a fulsome uh, um, preparation and um, welcome, and thank you very, very much for that introduction, Ambassador. I, I'm really honoured, uh, and I will try to live up to to uh, um, the, the message you, you gave about me. Uh, and I want to thank Whale as well for all his um, help with organising uh, this uh, this lecture. I don't usually do public lectures. I'm more used to doing research presentations, and seminars, and things like that. Um, but when Well invited me to think about doing a talk of this type, um, it, it was, I was ready for that because I had begun to realize um, that I was very reminded um, when I arrived here very quickly of a time in my life, which Well didn't mention, which was in between when I finished my PhD and when I started work as, a, as an academic. Because for a period of about six years, uh, I worked in various industries, notably the biotechnology and the food industry. And those industries then, I'm talking about the latter half of the 1980s, were very much in their infancy. Um, There were not, for example, very many protein drugs. Nowadays, most of the top 10 best-selling drugs are protein drugs. Uh, But then it was a very new thing. Um, and my very first job, even when I was writing up my PhD, which, by the way, I wrote up in New Jersey, just across the river from New York. So uh, the, what the ambassador says is perfectly true. Uh, we, 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 we all have had reasons to love New York. Uh, it's so good they named it twice. Um, but I wrote up much of my PhD across the river from New York. Uh, And in those days, you literally did have to write it. Now, don't laugh, the younger people, but actually you did have to write. It wasn't all done on a PC. So um, I remember those days. uh, And I started with um, an American um, biotechnology company, which was making a brand new protein drug called gamma interferon. Now, interferons are a category of proteins that have antiviral and anti-cancer properties. And this was going to be the first time this drug was ever produced commercially. And we came back from the US about maybe six months later, a group of approximately 30 young Irish scientists, and we set up the very first European recombinant protein production plant that was purpose-built. And we produced eventually this drug in that plant, and it it was sold all around the world from there. Uh, and it was used in the treatment of a form of leukemia. Fast forward about 15 years, that plant employed about 700 people, and it produced about 14 different protein drugs. Not alone that, but it did R and D. It went right up the value chain, um, and it was involved in development of new drugs. So for that American pharmaceutical company, and this is my lived experience, this is not just something I read in a book, um, it was a very good business move uh, to set up this, this operation in Ireland, and they are still in existence in Ireland. And many, many other companies, as I will show you in a moment, followed that same route. So I have lived this myself. It's not something I read about. I'm not an economist. I'll give you some facts and figures, but I'm never quite sure about facts and figures outside of my own comfort zone. Uh, so uh, I, I, I will give you opinions and impressions that are my personal opinions and impressions. Some of the time, they're actually coming from my lived experience. Uh, and and I, want to sh- I thought it was an opportunity when Well invited me uh, to, to get out of my comfort zone and do that and, 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 and share that with you. Um, and the reason I did is that when I got here uh, just over a year ago, I actually, in some weird way, recognized the landscape. I don't mean I recognized the desert. I don't mean I recognized the mountains. I didn't recognize the beautiful coastline. That's not what I mean. What I mean is I recognized the educational uh, and scientific possibilities here. Because it took me right back to when I was being interviewed for my very first job in 1984. Uh, And I, I, I can see here the... Beginnings of this journey towards a diversified, knowledge-based economy. And so I thought it might be worth sharing with you uh, some of the story of of myself, first of all, and also of my country, uh, to to see if I can persuade you that we could be taken as some sort of a model for the UAE in, in developing this wonderful a diversified knowledge-based economy, which will lead to uh, long- long-term development and employment uh, for all the people in this country. No, I'll just go back one there, I'm sorry. Now, it's usual, whenever I do a, a, t- a lecture to students or a talk of some sort, my last slide usually, uh, sorry, my second last slide is usually what we call in the, in the business the take-home message. But what I've learned with experience and time is that by the time you get to that point, people are thinking about their dinner or they're thinking about having a cup of coffee and they're really sick of listening to my voice, so I don't get any attention from them. So what I'm going to do now is give you the take-home message. And then you, you can choose to listen or not listen. And my take-home message for you is that knowledge, which is required, of course, for a knowledge economy, comes essentially from two places. It comes from education. That is the body of knowledge, if you like, that currently exists, which in education we transmit to the next generation. But it also comes from research. And that is where new knowledge comes from. And that new knowledge has got to be interpreted and parsed and evaluated in the context of the preceding corpus of knowledge. So no knowledge economy in the world has arisen without there being significant investment and attention paid to education at every level and also to research. And in particular, to development of some form of a research ecosystem. So these are two things that I think are very important. Uh, if you look at other knowledge economies like Singapore, South Korea, Um, Finland, you will see that exactly the same thing happened in those countries. They had to really invest in high quality education at every level. And they also had to develop some form of a research infrastructure. And I feel these are two things that, that are happening here and will need to continue to happen into the future. In terms of research, it's not just about funding research grants. It's about creating a research ecosystem, really an innovation ecosystem. And there are many, many different dimensions to that. One of them is, of course, having research funding, but there are other dimensions as well. And I hope to persuade you as I go through this talk uh, that those um, innovations are possible here and and will will, will happen here uh, over the next few years. Now, one of the striking things when you come... To this part of the world, and I understand it's true of the GCC generally, is that there is an incredible concentration here on engineering. Fundamental sciences, basic sciences like physics, biology, chemistry, mathematics, computer science, they're here, but they're not nearly as important in in comparison with engineering uh, in terms of the scale of investment. Just to give you an example, if you look at the statistics for students graduating here in engineering, they're in the hundreds. But if you look at students graduating in science, fundamental science disciplines, like chemistry and physics, they're, they're in the tens. There's not hundreds, there's not thousands. In most developed economies, it's the opposite. Engineering is quite a small-scale activity, and science, fundamental science is actually a much larger-scale activity. So it's quite striking when you come here uh, that that is that is uh, a sort of a difference. Um, so the first thing I wanted to kind of try, and, and, I, and I was told not to get technical, so I'm trying very hard to obey my instructions, um, but I, I'm just going to give you some ex- examples, and these are my like personal examples of some innovations that are coming now over the horizon. Some of them are here already. Some of them will be here in five to 10 years. These will be industries of the future. These will be things uh, that, Will, will very soon go from the laboratory uh, into real life. And the first thing I want to mention a little bit about is pluripotent stem cells. Now, stem cells are non-differentiated human cells. And if we give them the right chemical triggers, they can develop into particular cell types. They can develop, for example, into heart cells. Um, and, and, and this is killing me here now. I'll go back on that one, I think. Um, if we look at heart cells, a big problem with heart transplantation is that patients reject the heart. Well, what if you could take stem cells and make a, a replacement heart? You now have a replacement organ. And I can see the scenario coming 15, 10 years from now, where we will be able to create a kind of a bank of tissues a bank of organs that we can simply go to and use to replace our own organs. Um, and one area where that is going to turn out to be very, very important is with kidney. Because it turns out that if you actually look at kidney function in human life, it simply goes down in a straight line. That the function deteriorates with time. So if you live to be 100, you're probably going to have not very good kidneys. But if we can replace kidneys during life, we can actually, signi- potentially, we should be able to significantly ex- expand the lifespan. Um, because an awful lot of human mortality goes back to high blood pressure uh, and heart disease and cardiovascular disease and things like that. So I feel that stem cell research, which is no research, will very soon be the basis of many new industries. And it will lead to, to un- things that are, as of yet, unimaginable, which sound like science fiction, but will become fact probably very soon after that. Second example is next generation genome sequencing. Um, The genome is made up of DNA. DNA is our material of inheritance. It is made of a series of little building blocks, which are called nucleotides, and they are in a particular sequence. And your DNA and my DNA are not exactly the same because we have slightly different sequences. Now, If if you look at this representation here, you will see there are four colors here. And each of these represents each of the four building blocks of DNA. And it's possible to take sort of a picture of this uh, and then to go through a bit of chemistry and then take a second picture. And then to to go through a bit of chemistry and take a third picture. And if you do that, for each of these little dots that you can see here, you will actually read three bases of DNA three so-called nucleotides, three building blocks. But if if you can see here, you can have as many as 100,000 of these reactions in a single tiny, tiny little uh, reaction vessel. So you can read 300,000 base pairs of DNA. So this is an innovation in uh, the sequencing of genomes, which has absolutely revolutionized um, the possibilities for personalized medicine. In other words, it now is cheap, cheap enough and possible technologically to sequence any individual's complete genome. The first human genome was sequenced back in two thousand and one, and it costs something like hundred million dollars. The first personalized genome was sequenced back in the, the uh, about twenty ten, something like that. That cost about a million dollars, and, and gradually over time, the cost has got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the reason is because this chemistry that I'm talking about is being done on a nano scale. It's been done on a very, very tiny scale. So the reagent costs are very low. Uh, and therefore, it's becoming possible now uh, to imagine a situation where when a child is born, a little bit of blood is taken and their genome is sequenced. Uh, and we can do sequences on whole... Um, populations. And one of my colleagues in Khalifa University has done groundbreaking work on the Arab genome. Uh, And it turns out there are some significant differences between the Arab genome and, say, the Caucasian genome. Uh, And she's interested in trying to apply that research to public health issues here, like the high incidence, for example, of diabetes. Another example of life science research where I think there's potential is the, the concept of gene editing. Uh, there is a gene editing tool called uh, it's called CRISPR, and it will allow us to actually remove a defective gene and replace it with a healthy gene. Just this year, there was a paper published in Nature where in an animal model, a mouse animal model, for a form of deafness, the defective gene was removed and was replaced with a healthy gene, and the resultant offspring now were no longer deaf. So you can imagine a scenario where, certainly for single-mutation diseases, it will become technologically possible uh, to gradually remove defective genes from the human population uh, and for parents to have perhaps healthy children, whereas in the past they might have been uh, unfortunately likely to have uh, children with particular uh, genetic diseases. Um, Another area that I'm very interested in myself is nanoscience, as the ambassador pointed out, we're we're uh, world leaders in this. So, in in my university, uh, where I come from, we um, we have a lot of activity on nanoscience, and I'm very interested myself in the toxicological implications of nan- nanomaterials. Uh, but this is something called a nanobot. It's actually a kind of a nano machine, uh, and you can. When I say nano, I want you to think of something on the scale of about one ten thousandth of a human hair. Okay, so think about a human hair, how thin that is. Divide that down by 10,000, and you're in the nano scale. So these kinds of things can be inje- could, for example, potentially be injected into a human bloodstream and clear away blockages. They could be loaded up with anti cancer drugs and driven to a tumor where they can release the drug. Uh, and this type of thing is, is not here yet, but it's coming over the horizon. So I want you to understand that science is not just something kind of nice. To, to know a little bit about, but engineering is the really serious thing. I want you to kind of get the idea. Science is coming in a, a sort of tidal wave over the horizon in all, in all kinds of areas, in material science, in biology, uh, and in interfaces between uh, biology, physics, and um, uh, chemical sciences. Uh, and it's going to impact on ordinary people's lives. It's not just going to be something that companies will have to worry about a little bit like Facebook, it's going to be really uh, in par- as a part of everyone's life. And you can already begin to see a little bit of this if you think about, for example, in vitro fertilization. 20 years ago, that was a very experimental thing. Now it's mainstream. These things are going to come to be mainstream. And I, I passionately believe that it is, por- it is really important for societies and for ordinary people to be informed about these technologies. We can't be innocent of these technologies. We have to be able to make informed decisions about these technologies. And many of these technologies are pushing back um, serious questions of of ethics, for example. Um, And every country in the world struggles with this. There's no right answer. Um, So I, I think this is going to present societal challenges, and therefore, as a scientist, I really think it's important we get out of the laboratory and we go talk to ordinary people and try to inform them about some of these developments so that they can make informed decisions and be aware of what's, what's coming down the tracks. So I think there's going to be many new industries. Some industries we can't even imagine yet. We have no idea what they're going to be. That's the nature of science. It, gener- it, it generates things that are not even imaginable sometimes. Um, So one thing we would like to be able to do, and I think most decision makers, uh, most political leaders, uh, most ministers for science and education would like to be able to do, is to predict where we're going in the future. But it is notoriously difficult to predict the future. And here are some great little examples. This comes from a a great website called Hopelessly Wrong Predictions. Um, And my my own personal favorite is the one from Alexander Graham Bell. I often quote this. One day there will be a telephone in every, every major city in the USA. Now... There's at least one telephone probably for every person in the audience, and maybe there's two or three, I don't know. But it certainly, there's far more than one telephone in every major city in the USA, uh, and so on. And there are other examples here. Uh, Marshall Foch thought that um, aircraft are interesting toys, but of no military value. This was two years before the beginning of the First World War. Uh, so it's very difficult to predict. In the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, they produced a, a, a report on the future of jobs. And they they state in there that by one popular estimate, some 65% of children entering primary school today will work in new job types that don't yet exist. So the future of jobs, the future of work, the future of employment uh, is is a very, very difficult thing to guess about. And uh, so I suppose what I'm trying to say to you, therefore, is there will be new technologies coming from fundamental science that will create new industries, that will provide new kinds of jobs. But the problem is we don't even know what these are going to be yet. So there, this presents us with a, a challenge as a society, I think. Now, um, I wanted to tell you a bit about our journey, and th- I'm going to start by. Uh, in, a, in a kind of a bad old time in history, which was Ireland about 1970. I was 12, so I was just about finishing primary school. Uh, and I remember all this. Okay, Now, I know many of you people in the audience, you're, you're very uh, young and fresh looking, um, and you probably weren't even born then. But um, this was my, my my history and my experience. Ireland at that time was just a little island off the northwest coast of Europe, a very peripheral location. It wasn't the center of anything. It was far away from everything. There was a very low standard of living. The per capita GDP then was approximately 70% of of later the EU core 15 countries. So in comparison to countries like, for example, the Netherlands or Denmark or or Switzerland or somewhere like that, we we had quite a low standard of living. The main employer and the main industrial activity was agriculture. And in fact, the agriculture was relatively low-tech. We exported animals on the hoof, as they say. We didn't even butcher them. We tended to export them. So we, we did not get much extra value from the agriculture that was there. There was very high unemployment. Uh, the population never rose much above 3 million. There was con- a consistent mass emigration to the U.K. and the U.S., such industry as was in existence, what tended to be rather low-tech, you know, footwear, manufacture, making clothes, that kind of thing, and it was non-competitive because it existed behind tariff barriers. There was very little free trade, in other words. At that time, only about 5% of children were educated beyond age 14. So this was not a very happy state of affairs. This was not a booming economy. And I I think it's worth stopping for a minute and saying, well, how did this happen? So I'm going to give you a very quick, quick, quick history lesson. Here's the history lesson. Um, Ireland gained political independence from the UK in 1922. Um, But the problem was we remained financially, to some extent, dependent on the UK. It was our main market. It was our main source of emigrants. Our immigrants moved to the UK. Um, the two main political parties in 1922 originated in a, a party called Sinn Fein, which was the party that had kind of led the, the revolution against the UK. Um, but they were built up about a kind of a philosophical ideal of being self sufficient. And they were largely cultural nationalists, they, they weren't really concerned with things like economics or science, or technology. Um, so there was a sort of an introverted, inward-looking uh, kind of a, a mentality from 1922 up to the 1960s. And one minor point as well, which is often not mentioned, is that we did not significantly benefit from the Marshall Plan after the Second World War. Many European countries uh, did, you know, got back on their feet very quickly thanks to the Marshall Plan. But because we had remained neutral in the Second World War, we didn't benefit from that at all. Now, here's some facts about Ireland now. So I'm doing a sort of before and after comparison. Uh, Our population now is almost 5 million. Uh, We produce sufficient food for 30 million people, so we export an awful lot of food. But nowadays, we add a lot of value to it. And that value comes from, as the ambassador pointed out, expertise in food science research. So the knowledge economy idea is you add value, uh, you go up the value tree, um, and therefore you're going to be more internationally competitive. And it's unlikely that this industry then will move to another country to a cheaper economy. So rather than being a a sort of a a low-cost economy just producing basic foods we've moved towards an economy which is trying to produce premier foods uh, and foods with significant ad- added value just taking food as an example and the result of this is that we are now the fourth largest beef exporter in the world and we're the largest beef exporter in Europe nine of the ten top pharmaceutical companies in the world uh, are in Ireland eight of the ten top IT companies uh, this is a, you can see here a listing of some of the 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 um, the software and IT companies that are there. Uh, we have a lot of the pharmaceutical companies. The only one we don't have, actually, is AstraZeneca. Um, and many of these companies have actually headquarters based in Ireland. There's almost 1,000 companies have headquarters based in Ireland. And in many cases, and these are European, at least, headquarters. Uh, and you can see a listing here of some of them. I just picked out some at random. Uh, Google, uh, they employ more than 2,500 people. Apple, Facebook, Pfizer, uh, Dell EMC, Intel, Microsoft, and I could go on and on. But I would just like to point out a, a few things about that table. You all know these companies. These companies are household names. These are enormous companies. These are some of the biggest companies that have ex- ever existed in the world. And yet they have cho- chosen to put their European headquarters in Ireland very often. Secondly, though, They employ significant numbers of people. For our country, 4 or 5 million people, 2,500 employees is is a big deal. Um, And thirdly, I would point out that this type of arrangement of companies means that if any one of these companies goes out of business, it's not such a big hit to the economy. We don't have companies that employ 100,000 people. We have companies that employ groups of people, but not not an enormous uh, number. And therefore, we're not so dependent on on them if, if anything does happen. And the last thing I would mention is a thing called the multiplier effect. For every one of these jobs, there is anywhere from one to four additional jobs created in the economy in other um, areas, like, for example, in services, in in raw materials, uh, in catering, in cleaning services, all that kind of thing. So, this is is quite a, a, a successful picture, I think, of an economy which has attracted in a lot of international investment. Um, from around the world. So, how did this come about then? What were the steps that were taken to go from a very poor country effectively in the 1970s in European terms to a very rich country now? The per capita GDP is almost $70,000 in Ireland. It, the per capita GDP in the UK is, is just over $30,000. So, we are now technically a very rich country. So, how did we make that a journey? What were the, the steps that were gone through? Well, the man that gets a lot of the credit for this is an economist called T.K. Whittaker. He actually only died last year. He lived to be 101. So don't let anyone tell you that economics is the dismal discipline. Uh, He was a very cheerful chap, and he lived a very long, a very happy and fruitful life. Um, he was a, a secretary to the Department of Finance, and as, as many of you will know, in every government in the world, the Department of Finance is the key department that controls the money, so it controls, it controls everything. And at quite a young age, he was put in charge of this department. Um, and he, he developed a, a report called the First Programme for Economic Expansion. And this, the result of this was that a decision was taken to end protectionism and to systematically engage in free trade. And also to move systematically from agriculture to industry. Now, at the time, the industry wouldn't be very high-tech, but nonetheless, it was a a sort of a paradigm shift. (laughs) Now, this was possible because the prime minister that we had at that time was a man called Sean Namas. um, And he he was the prime minister who took this guy under his wing. uh, And in fact they broke broken off a lot of laws and they've broken off a lot of custom and practice. They didn't consult with everyone in the cabinet. They didn't get everyone to sign off and approve things. They just went ahead and pushed it uh, and, and just did what needed to be done. Uh, but Sean Lemass made a, a decision to open Ireland up to foreign direct investment. And one serious element of the success of the Irish economy, certainly, is this business of foreign direct investment. Since 1990... Uh, we have attracted in about $189 billion. That's more than goes into Brazil, Russia, India, and China combined. Ladies and gentlemen, this is in an economy that's 1% of the EU economy. It's only 5 million people. So that's a hell of a lot of foreign direct investment to attract in. And in a moment, I'll try and give you some some reasons why uh, this was possible. In 1966, uh, uh, our, our education minister, again, a man which, who is much loved in history, and you know he's, he's very well respected for his achievements, called Donna O'Malley, introduced the concept of free high school education. And also, he, he built up transport links for kids to get to school in rural areas. Um, now, this was a kind of a radical concept. A lot of people spoke against it. They didn't want this to happen. But This turns out in in retrospect to have been a really important step. And it began a process whereby Irish people at all levels started to get proper education. And it underlines that it is this, the importance of education and the link between education and economic development. In 1973, we joined the European Union. um, And this opened us up to funding from the EU for infrastructure and scientific research. And we're no net contributors to the European Union budget. We, we, we give them back money no, but at this time we were recipients of this money. Um, and for the first time, it meant we could systematically participate in European research programs. Uh, and we could start to collaborate with scientists in other countries in Europe. And this was, was again, a, a significant step forward. In 1996, tuition fees were abolished for third-level education at undergraduate level. And in 1999, uh, Science Foundation Ireland was established. And it, in the beginning, it funded mainly IT and biotechnology research, but they interpreted that very kind of liberally. So in fact, they, f- they put, funded a whole load of different kinds of research. Uh, and this led to um, the, the uh, growth of research. Outputs from Irish universities and research centres, and the very large citations that we were able to get, and the success that the Minister pointed out earlier in, in various areas of science, such as nanotechnology, food science, and life science. So, how was this possible? What made this possible? Why didn't every other country in Europe do this? What was it that made Ireland stand out as a destination for foreign direct investment? Well, the first point is taxation. And this is current affairs. This is in the news right now, <laughs> right now. Uh, the White House is interested in this uh, and the European Union are interested in this uh, and, and it is going to come under the microscope. And, and you know, I have to put my, I'm only giving my personal opinion here. I have to admit taxation was a big part of it, but I do not think it is 100% of it. There's a lot of others. You don't employ two or three or 4,000 people just because there's a slight tax benefit. I think there's also, there was also a clear perception that there is talent available. Uh, And most of these countries, most of these companies, if I I speak of foreign direct investment just for the moment, um, have not not just come to Ireland and left again. They've come and they've stayed. In some cases, they've stayed for 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, So it isn't just taxation. There is a a real business that they can run there with people uh, who are competent. Uh, And that's a very important uh, aspect of, of, of attracting these people in. I think we were able to benefit also from our diaspora. There are many, many uh, Irish-Americans. The man who set up Science Foundation Ireland was an Irish-American from the National Science Foundation. Uh, We are English-speaking, and that's a big help. Uh, It's very easy to do business here. Um, we We are regarded as being one of the top 10, at least, best places to do business. And this is because there's a minimum of bureaucracy, there is very little corruption. We, in, in corruption in the States, we're always near the top. Um, and there's quite a bit of transparency in terms of doing business. We have a common law legal system, which is understandable to the American American lawyers, for example, and international lawyers. And so therefore, we, it, 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 it turns out it's, it's, an, it's just an easy thing to do, to set up a company in Ireland. Uh, and we we have a, one of the most successful Industrial Development Authorities, which is a semi-state organization that does nothing else but going around the world attracting in uh, investment. Uh, We are located in the Eurozone, so this means that companies don't have to worry too much about exchange rates. Uh, you know, we, 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 deal, we deal with Germany, we deal with France in the same currency. Uh, so we don't have tariffs between us and Germany and France, and we don't have currency exchange problems. And we have a strong track record. Um, and I certainly have seen this with the pharmaceutical industry. I told you at the beginning when I went there, there was this company. Um, there are now probably 20 companies around that area, within a 30-kilometer um, radius, who produce protein drugs. These companies like to be where the other companies are. They like company uh, because they know they're going to have people uh, who have experience in in that particular business. So a lot of these companies like to cluster together. Um, Okay, now I come now to some lessons for the UAE, and I'm not going to be as as presumptuous as to to prescribe things uh, uh, expressly, but I'm just going to point out things that I think we did probably well, which can be done well here as well. Uh, Firstly, education, as I said at the outset, is key to knowledge generation and commercialization. The second point is, fail again, fail better. This is a quote from Samuel Beckett, the great Irish playwright and Nobel laureate. And this is to tell you that we did not always get everything right. There were mistakes. uh, There were things that did not work. And we had to go back to the drawing board again. Uh, we had a significant financial collapse at the time of the Lehman Brothers collapse worldwide. And we paid a very, very serious price for that in comparison to most of our European countries. And ordinary people pay that price. So there have been mistakes made. There have been things probably that happened that should not have happened. It's not, it's not. If you're on this journey, you've got to be prepared to make mistakes. Probably 80% of the potential companies you might want to produce will not work out. But the one or the two that do will cover for that. So it's got to be a situation where you are prepared to fail. If you're not prepared to fail, you're not prepared to do anything. Um, we need to inter- you need to internationalize. Well, I don't have to tell you guys about internationalization. I, mean, I have to look around the audience. It's, it's like the United Nations here anyway. Um, but it, it, this internationalize means not just um, kind of having an international mix. It also means having an international mentality. It means not being introverted. Uh, as we were in the 70s, but actually opening up to the world and being open to trading with the world, being open to, to new ideas, new 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 prospects, new technologies, new partnerships. Um, you need an innovation ecosystem, and that has many different aspects to it, like funding, people, uh, if you want to have a research ecosystem, you need graduate students, you need postdocs, uh, postdoc group fellows, and you need re- full-time researchers in research centers and universities. So that's a people thing. You do need these people. And they don't, they don't just grow on trees. You have to educate people to get them to this level. Uh, and that's, again, where education uh, is important. And you need facilities for research. You need to, to facilitate commercialization uh, you need to le- keep open the possibilities of, offered by blue skies research, kind of speculative research. If you only will do research that is very much targeted at um, you know, commercialization at that end of the innovation uh, spectrum, then you miss out on opportunities because you're, you're closing off uh, perhaps uh, innovative research, with, which, which might be somewhat more speculative. Another point, which I think is actually really important in terms of considering the relationship between Ireland and the UAE is the fact that small is beautiful. They're both small countries. Ireland could bring to this country small country solutions that you won't get from China and you won't get from the US. And big countries have large domestic economies. And if it comes to it, they can just trade within their own economy, but small countries have very few options except to engage with the outside world. Uh, and I think that's what both UAE and Ireland uh, are doing and will need to do for the future. Um, and what we did was very much we began with niches uh, where we had some strengths and then we diversified from that platform. And I see some of the uh, niches of opportunity here in the UAE uh, could be, for example, energy, uh, in particular um, um, you know, novel kinds of energy, um, not just oil and gas, uh, material science and chemistry-based industry, uh, artificial intelligence, and I know there's a very significant movement uh, to, to build up artificial intelligence in the country, um, logistics and transportation, the UAE probably leads the world in that now, uh, and environment. This is a very um, challenging place to, for human beings to live. There are all kinds of issues to do with Desalination of water, uh, food security, um, production of enough food, and coping with global warming. So this is actually a very good natural laboratory for environmental science, uh, and I, I think that that could become a much a very productive aspect of the research portfolio here in the future. So, ladies and gentlemen, these are just my personal views, my uh, my, my opinions. Um, I'm sure you all have your own opinions, and I'd be very happy to engage in, in, in any kind of a question and answer uh, on that basis. So thank you very much for your attention this evening. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu.